For the past five episodes, we've explored the social history of plastic, from when it was first invented in the late 1800s, through an entire century of innovation and crises. But today, we're not talking about history. We've reached the present day, and right now, we're drowning in plastic. From Parsons Healthy Materials Lab, this is Trace Material, stories from the plastic sage. Way back in episode one, we talked about Monsanto's House of the Future, built in Disneyland's Tomorrowland in 1957. In the 1950s, plastic was at the center of America's imaginings of the future. In the post-war boom, plastic democratized objects that were formerly only accessible to the wealthy. In the world of tomorrow, people wouldn't be buying fine china and silk shirts. Everything could be made from plastic. For many Americans living at the time, plastic was the material of the future. It represented American ingenuity. It was born from new chemical frontiers. It was going to make everything easier, cleaner, and cheaper. And by and large, those predictions were correct. In many ways, plastic has made modern life easier. It's much cheaper than other materials. And in some settings like hospitals, it's the most sterile option. And it is certainly, without a doubt, the material that has come to define our time. But as plastic's flaws become more and more apparent, does it still represent the future? And are we thinking about the future as something shiny and bright, like the people who lined up to see Tomorrowland in 1957? Um, okay, so I've got a thought experiment. If Disney built Tomorrowland today, what do you think it would look like? I don't know. I feel like it would have some sort of like race car ride sponsored by Tesla that was 100% electric and self-driving. Oh my God, yeah, totally. And the house of the future might be filled with like completely compostable seaweed-based bioresins. Wait, is that a real thing or did you make that up? No, no, it's a, it's a thing or it will be. <laughs> okay, I should have known. But honestly, I don't think anyone would go to Tomorrowland built in 2021. Yeah, I mean, is the entire idea of the future now something that's just causing us anxiety to even think about? According to a recent poll, more than 40% of Americans felt disgusted or helpless about climate change. Yeah, not great feelings. Yeah. So today we're going to dig into the current feelings of climate anxiety, especially as it relates to plastic. To do that, we're going to speak to two very different teen activists, and then a material designer working at the forefront of biosynthetics to try to piece together what exactly we think of when we think of the future in 2021. Grace Cudahy and Vivian Tan are both high school students coming of age during the absolute tornado of crises we currently find ourselves in. And they're both also very busy trying to do their parts to build a better world. We spoke to them individually about their thoughts on plastic and their hopes for the future. It should go without saying, but we'll say it anyway. It takes a lot of bravery to be interviewed in any stage of life, but especially when you're a teenager. So Grace and Vivian both deserve some extra credit. Vivian lives in British Columbia, Canada. She's a three-time TEDx speaker and is about to start applying for college. As we all know, that's a lot. Once you reach grade 12, you got to think about what are you going to do in university or post-secondary? Um, who do you want to 
be? What do you want to be? I don't know. Once you kind of reach that stage where you turn 18, that's when you feel a lot of responsibility. Things hit you because, you know, you're not a teenager anymore. You are an adult. With that, there's a lot more expectations placed on you, a lot more stress, I would say, because there is a lot more things around your life that you have to manage, you have to consider. But applying to college is honestly the least of her worries. I actually do have eco anxiety as well. Like, is there even going to be a future? Because, you know, it's piling up in plastic. The ocean's going to be drowning in plastic. Yeah, you can worry about if I'm going to have enough money, if I'm going to be happy and such. Yes, I know that that's important. But also living a sustainable life and trying to be eco-friendly. If you don't take that as a priority as well, then you might not even have a future at all. For Vivian, and I would also venture to say for us all, contemplating the climate crisis feels daunting. But instead of just being paralyzed by the enormity of it, she started thinking about taking small steps close to home. When I kind of saw how people threw away a lot of plastic at events, I used to help others kind of educate them on what goes in which bin. Waste diversion, if you say That was when I saw a lot of people within my city didn't really know what goes in which bin. Like I even saw some people put compost items into the garbage. Those small steps also included something that I think of as a terrifying big step. She signed up to give a TED Talk. She's found ways to make small changes in her own life and take control over her own contributions to climate change and plastic pollution. Her aim with her TED Talks is to inspire and guide others to make those small changes too. Your life doesn't have to change super completely, you know, all the time. It's a journey. You can't just suddenly do a 180 in your life. You're not going to follow through. Start taking small steps to go on that journey and keep on taking those steps. You don't need to say, I'm going to just immediately cut off plastic all of my life. So kind of a small step to take that's more realistic for sure is to say, I'm going to start thinking about how much plastic I'm using. I'm going to see... Like what single-use plastics I can kind of cut out in my life. It's a process, but when everyone thinks this way, that's when a lot of real change can happen. So it all starts with you. When we spoke with Vivian, we could tell she was, in many ways, optimistic about our collective future, but that she believes there's a lot of work to do and that we all have to do it. For Vivian, the future is not guaranteed. It seems that she feels that on a personal and collective level, and she spends a lot of time thinking about it. Burgess and I are only about 10 years older than Vivian, but at least for me, I didn't feel like the entire world was about to end when I was in high school. When I thought about the future, I didn't think about it in terms of America's or the world's collective future. I just thought about my own. But now that I say that out loud, maybe I was just a selfish teenager. I think you probably were. (laughs) No, I definitely did not think that way either. I mean, I think the same is probably true of teenagers who waited in line to visit the home of the future back in 1957. They were probably thinking like, oh, wow, I might be able to have a whole bunch of cool plastic stuff in 1987, not I wonder how this plastic will affect human and planetary health. Yeah, totally. When we thought about the future, we were all talking about hoverboards and it, of course, came to pass. Hoverboards are a thing, right? Well, yeah, but not like Marty McFly hoverboards. They, they just use the name? Yes. It's a real letdown. They don't hover. No. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But the kids these days are apparently not feeling like they have enough security to dream. Well, at least climate activists like Vivian and Grace anyway. Grace is an NYC local, and they're very active within both local and national climate organizations. 
My name is Grace Cudahy. I use she, they pronouns. I am a junior and I'm an activist with Triage and the Sunrise Movement. And while Grace has many of the same feelings as Vivian, they have some very different ideas about how to act on them. So there is like a zero waste uh, movement that's at my school. Um, And there's nothing wrong with that. I just personally don't align with the values of zero waste because I think that zero waste puts a lot of personal responsibility on people and also tends to have a lot of very classist (laughs) attitudes in when we're how to go about fighting the climate crisis. And also just I think that the idea of zero waste and the idea of using a tote bag is what is going to fight the climate crisis is something that was a myth created by corporations through advertisement campaigns. So it was a way for them to put the responsibility on individual people and on consumers' decisions to push off of their own responsibility. My my club members have a joke that my favorite saying is 100 corporations produce 70% of global emissions. But when we're living in a world where that's the case, the reality of trying to put climate change on the individual consumer is kind of ridiculous, in my opinion. Don't worry, Grace isn't saying that we shouldn't use our beloved tote bags. Just that using them isn't going to solve the climate crisis. They say that the climate crisis is simply too big to be solved by consumers alone and believe that we need government intervention. A huge part of the pillars of my club is that individual actions are great if that's something that you want to pursue. We're never going to discourage you from trying to be more sustainable in your own personal decision making. However, that's not enough when we're facing a nine-year deadline. So we're trying to fight for environmental changes through political change because we feel like political advocacy is broad strokes more accessible and also broad strokes more effective. So we are fighting to elect more progressive electeds in New York City locally and also to fight systemic injustices generally. Grace currently holds leadership positions in both her school club and within the Sunrise Movement. For the Sunrise Movement, they're on constant Zoom calls, have logged hundreds of hours of phone banking, and are one of the decision makers for Sunrise's valuable political endorsements, which means they're very busy on top of being like any other high school junior. It's been a little difficult to balance trying to engage in electoral politics and trying to shift New York City towards progressivism and also passing (laughs) pre-calculus. You know, it's also very hard to stay optimistic where it's like, what's the point of doing math when if we don't do anything when I'm 25, we'll be doomed, you know? So it's like, what is the point of staying motivated to finish high school? It totally makes sense to feel that way. I mean, it's like bad news piled on top of worse news lately. Something that's clearly specifically weighing on Grace is the UN statement in 2019 that we only have 11 years to change consumption patterns before there's irreversible damage to the planet. Older people will often say to me like, oh, like your generation is so active. And it's like, well, we have to be. (laughs) You know, like we don't really have a choice anymore. We have nine years before we're irreversibly doomed. And in nine years, I'll be 25. So I'm not going to be making climate legislation when I'm 25. So it's still going to be your responsibility. (laughs) Like, sorry. (laughs) I feel like I'm going to pull up a meme really quickly that I want to show you just because, like, I think it's really funny. I'm going to see if I can find it. Yeah, things got very Gen Z on our call with Grace. You see it? (laughs) 
That's what I'm just showing. <laughs> <laughs> like that's yeah. So it's basically um, it's the meme template where it's like a person drowning and they're asking for help, and it's like youth climate activists asking politicians to save their lives and futures. But instead of that, the politicians are like, "You're so inspiring," but still leave us drowning in the sea without helping us at all. I get a lot of "You're so inspiring," "You're so." well-spoken you're so motivated and then when i'm like awesome let's enact progressive legislation let's pass a green new deal it's like oh you're too young you don't understand how the world works (laughs) you're idealistic so there's kind of this idea that i'm simultaneously too young to understand how the world works but yet also old enough to be responsible for saving it It's stress about the future, and the stress of feeling like you're getting a performative high-five instead of a helping hand, that has come to define Grace and Vivian's generation. They're asking themselves, and the rest of us, big questions with their roots and big problems. And they aren't easy to answer. A lot of big questions, and it seems like especially ones concerning the climate crisis, don't have one answer. Instead, they have to be chipped away at in many different ways. When it comes to plastic, we have popular solutions like waste reduction, better recycling systems, and choosing plastic alternatives. It's that last option, the alternatives, that we want to spend the rest of the episode thinking about. All right, so if we're thinking about materials that might be more sustainable than plastic, there's one that's been getting a lot of buzz lately, called bioplastic. But like petroleum-based plastics, hammering out a clear definition of bioplastics is easier said than done. In a lot of ways, people are thinking about bioplastics like people thought about plastics in the early 20th century. There are new, amazing chemical explorations that might save the world and make everything better for everyone. Often people think putting words like bio or eco in front of things automatically means they're healthier. But it's actually way more complicated than that. There are a lot of people imagining a lot of eco and bio alternatives to plastic right now. But for the rest of this episode, we're going to focus specifically on bioplastics and unpack exactly what they are and how they might help us. We first found Vivian because when you type bioplastics into YouTube, her TED Talk from 2019 is the first thing that comes up. And that talk, which has been viewed almost 20,000 times, was born out of a science project at school. I actually was interested in looking at plastics and seeing if there was an alternative and kind of creating a plastic, you know, that could decompose. Eventually found out that, hey, there is a such thing. It's called a bioplastic. And I decided to try to make a bioplastic of my own. Sadly, it didn't really go that well. Yes, it could decompose, but at the same time, it was kind of too weak. Thinking material innovation was maybe not for her, Vivian decided to take a different approach to helping us find our way out of the plastics crisis. There's a lot that I saw, so I was like, okay, what can they do to help? And kind of tell people, like, what is their alternative plastic? So that was why I also want to give that TEDx talk. So she did just that. In her TED talk, she spreads the good news of bioplastics. Here's how she defines them. So in a sense, they're, they're plastics. Yeah, for sure. Of course, bioplastic, it should be plastic, right? But they're made out of renewable materials instead of 
petroleum or like a oil within the earth that is called a fossil fuel, which is not really a renewable source. Okay, so essentially bioplastics are just plastics. Remember, early plastics like celluloid weren't made of petroleum. They were made of renewable materials like cellulose or plant matter. In the post-war period, we got used to the idea of plastics only being made from petrochemicals, but it wasn't always that way. So the term bioplastics is, for the first time, separating petrochemical-based plastics and everything that's not petrochemical-based into two distinct categories, plastic and bioplastic. But bioplastic is truly an enormous category, and it can mean countless different things. Not all bioplastics are biodegradable or compostable, or even much healthier for people and planet than regular plastics. It's actually a bit of an overwhelming concept. Luckily, we were able to chat with Amy Congdon, a materials designer who helped us break down what some of these terms mean. My name is Amy Congdon. My background is I'm a designer by training, but specifically textiles. But my PhD is in tissue engineered textiles, um, and I'm now full-time at Biofabricate, and I'm head of design intelligence there. Biofabricate essentially is a consultancy and we work with biomaterial innovators, consumer brands and investors who are all interested in growing a sustainable future. And our vision is a sustainable material world built with biology, not oil. We've talked a lot about public perception of the future so far in this episode, and Amy is trying to actually help design the future. Amy primarily works within the world of textiles. Currently, materials like polyester, fleece, and almost anything you might find in the athleisure aisle are plastic, and they pretty much dominate the textile market. You might be more familiar with the term synthetic when referring to fabrics like these, but in this context, it means the same thing as plastic. There are a lot of bio terms in the space Amy works in, and they can feel pretty complex. For those of you who are interested in what bio-based versus biosynthetic means, you can check out the diagram we've linked to on our webpage. But something we do want to make clear here is that these terms are still in flux, and few of them have legal definitions. And even those that do, like bio-based, sometimes feel misleading. For instance, to be bio-based, a carpet only needs 7% bio-content. The rest can be synthetic. A polycotton fabric that's 25% cotton and 75% polyester could be called a bio-based fabric. Okay, so if a carpet company added 7% wool, a bio-based material, to their poly blend, the carpet would now legally be a bio-based material, even if it was 93% plastic. If I were shopping for carpet and trying to prioritize natural fibers, that would certainly feel misleading. For sure. And I think it's worthwhile to think about the why behind these materials. Are they being created so that they'll sell or so that they'll reduce plastic waste? Or maybe both? Amy impressed upon us that many companies want to invest in new materials. They are on vogue, after all. But they don't want to stop production to do it. Nor do they want to sell a different product to their customer. Really, they're just looking to change one little aspect of their enormous production system. You're still talking about making materials like polyester or nylon, but you're looking to get that sort of the chemicals that are used to make that from a biomass. You're essentially looking to make a drop-in replacement, but you're just looking to make it in a different way. Okay, let's stop and think about that for a second. Biosynthetics are a drop-in replacement for synthetics. So many of the issues we've spent this past season discussing might still happen if we move to bioplastics. Overflowing landfills stuffed with single-use bioplastics? That doesn't sound like a future we want. 
These drop-in replacements are better than the status quo. Hey, I'll take any reduction to our global carbon footprint as a win. And if they can make plastic forks or basketball shorts out of sugar instead of crude oil, that will make a difference. And while if this was widely implemented, oil refineries might give way to sugarcane fields, the rest of the system, the dangerous factories, the toxic groundwater, the incinerators pumping out dioxin, would stay the same. So can new materials give way to new systems? That's really what Amy and her team are most interested in. And they believe that a certain class of materials, those that are biofabricated, might be able to do just that. Biofabricated materials are produced by living cells. So, for example, mammalian cells and microorganisms such as bacteria, yeast and mycelium. So an example of that is, yeah, you could have a bacteria that's making you a dye that you would use to dye a textile. You could have um, a mycelium that's growing you an acoustic panel to go on the wall of your, uh, your home or your office. Or you could have a bacteria or yeast making you a protein like a silk or a collagen. And then you might turn that either into a sheet material in, or into a, a yarn. Or, you know, bacteria that's making you a concrete block, you know, or a tile. So all kinds of applications. These materials are different because they're alive. In our first episode, we talked about how before the chemical revolution, materials were born of the earth and returned to the earth. They were a part of the life cycle we innately understand as humans. What's exciting about biofabricated materials is that they're a part of that natural life cycle once again. When I was studying and I heard about the ability to like grow materials, like as a designer, that blows your mind and you go to all of the really exciting things that you can do. And do I believe that, you know, we can learn from and collaborate with nature to make an incredible material, like a sustainable material world but with biology, not oil, you know, that's our vision. And I absolutely believe that is possible, but it takes time. The more you work in any industry, you have a realistic, you, you get a lot of realism around how long that's going to take and what the complexities are. So you always have to balance the realism and, and what you're experiencing with, okay, what your, what your hopes are and, and what you see as, is possible. There's a lot happening across these fields. So why are we still using plastics at all? If there are all of these great materials, can't we just stop using fossil fuels and stop the UN's ticking time bomb of ultimate planetary destruction? Mm, Well, not yet. Not seamlessly, at least. These new materials just aren't quite ready. If we think back to early plastic innovation from a century ago, plastics were first created in the 1860s, but didn't become mainstream until many decades after that. And as frustrating as that answer feels, it makes complete sense. And it's tempting to say, well, what's the healthiest, most sustainable material? Let's throw all our time and money behind that one. But that wouldn't really work either. I think it's just fair to say that we need as many solutions as possible. Um, And unfortunately, there's no silver bullet. We should be looking at all of the different solutions that we and tools that we have at our disposal to help make a difference in regards to the environment and sort of climate change. You can't, you know, assume that if something is, you know, quote unquote bio, that it's better. You need to go beyond assumptions and do the, under, do the work to understand as best as possible what's the impact of the material or product that you're using and not just making assumptions. Yeah, but I think right now we all feel desperate for solutions. We want to be able to imagine a Tomorrowland that's just and equitable, sustainable, and healthy. And we're hoping these new biomaterials might literally pave a road there. The only truly sustainable way thing to do is to not not make or buy anything. 
everything has an impact <laughs> yeah everything has an impact so it's about understanding what that impact is what you care about and what moves the needle forward in a positive way We all have to make choices as consumers, and if we're lucky enough, as makers. And those choices don't feel easy right now. But there is some power in those choices, and we wield it every time we choose to buy something, or not buy something. And beyond our own consumer habits, how do we spend our time? Should we be phone banking, or organizing boycotts, or picking up litter, or getting more tote bags? Maybe we should all just do what we can and help move the needle in the ways that are accessible to us. This season, we set out to trace the social history of plastic. We wanted to know what it's represented to everyday Americans and when and how it entered our lives in such a massive way. In less than a century, plastic went from being a brilliant new material that might save the planet to the symbol of the waste and excess that's destroying it. Along the way, Americans' understanding of our country and our culture has changed, and plastic has tried to keep up with the times. We've done our best to capture all the twists and turns in plastic's story in six episodes, and we know that's left you with a lot of information. So although this is the last full-length episode, you'll get one more plastic update from us. Next time, we'll be recapping the story, reacting to it, and sharing some content that we haven't been able to share yet. Thank you, thank you for listening to Trace Material, Stories from the Plastics Age. Hi, this is Jansara Ruth from Healthy Materials Lab. Thanks for listening. Trace Material is a project of Parsons Healthy Materials Lab at the New School. It's produced by Ava Robinson and Burgess Brown. Our project director is Allison Mears, and our research assistant is Olivia Hamilton. If you've been enjoying this season, please take a moment to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. Thank you to Vivian Tan, to Grace Cudahy, and to Amy Congdon for lending their voices, experiences, and expertise to this episode. For more information, head to our website at healthymaterialslab.org backslash podcast, and be sure to give us a follow on Instagram at healthymaterialslab. Trace Material is made possible by funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities and support from Friends of Healthier Materials. Our theme music is Rainbow Road by Cardioid. Additional music is from Blue Dot Sessions.